Global Council's flash call on the U.S. midterm results. My name is Robert Etter. I'm a director at Global Council and part of our U.S. team. I have my colleagues Goma Wankwo and Max Mandich here uh, with me today to talk about the mid midterm results and uh, the implications. Uh, we're going to try to keep it to about half an hour today and leave a little time uh, for any questions our listeners may have. In addition uh, to an overall update on the results, uh, we really wanted to focus on the policy impacts in the tech and financial services uh, spaces uh, as well today. Uh, so I'll talk briefly about the state of play and where we are with the midterm results and a few of the key takeaways. Uh, and then I'm gonna bring in Ugoma and Max to talk about what it all means uh, for the tech and financial services uh, policy spaces. Uh, and with that, let me just start <clears throat> with where we are. As of today, uh, neither the House nor uh, Senate control has been determined. Uh, Senate control is going to come down to the results in three states, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Uh, whichever party wins two of those three states uh, will win control of the Senate. As of today in Arizona, the uh, incumbent Democrat, Mark Kelly, uh, has about a five percentage point lead over the Republican candidate, Blake Masters, uh, with about 70% of the ballots counted. Uh, in Nevada, Republican challenger Adam Lack Laxalt has about a two percentage point lead over incumbent Democrat uh, Catherine Cortez Masto with about 79% of the ballots counted. Uh, and then in Georgia, incumbent Democrat uh, Senator uh, Raphael Warnock finished about a percentage point ahead of his challenger, Herschel Walker, uh, but Warnock did not get 50%. He got 49.4%. Uh, uh, so under the rules in Georgia, they're headed to a runoff uh, on December 6th. So there's a chance we won't know about Senate control uh, for days or even a month if it comes down uh, to Georgia. The House uh, still hasn't been called uh, either, uh, although it appears Republicans are on track to win control. Uh, the New York Times has their current odds at 83 percent, so pretty uh, strong odds that they take control of the House, but uh, not certain uh, by any means. Uh, it's still unclear uh, when the House will be called. Uh, it could be a matter of days, not hours. Um, but if Republicans do, in fact, win control, uh, it's looking like they will have a narrower margin and a small majority uh, than had been widely expected. Uh, so given expectations, it seems Democrats had a good night overall, even though they'll probably lose control of at least the House. Republicans uh, seem to have underperformed. Uh, and that's the narrative uh, we've kind of seen form in the in the day or two uh, since election night. Uh, but fundamentally, we've been looking at whether Republicans gain control uh, of the House as kind of a key outcome here, regardless of their margin of victory in the House, regardless of what happens in the Senate. Uh, Republican control of the House will mean we have divided government in the United States for the first time under President Biden. And that will mean a uh, fundamentally different dynamic in Washington than what we've had the last couple of years. Uh, we'll see the legislative stalemate that we've been talking about on some of our uh, previous midterms calls, House Republican uh, investigations of the Biden administration, big legislative fights on things like government funding and the debt limit. Uh, and all of that appears on track uh, to happen with Republicans looking like they'll take the House. In terms of takeaways, uh, as far as the House uh, results go, it's pretty clear that uh, Republicans have underperformed uh, relative to expectations. Uh, they really had the wind at their back this cycle, uh, given the historical trends 
economic conditions, given the president's uh, relatively low approval ratings. Kevin McCarthy, who's the likely uh, incoming House Speaker, uh, had been talking about winning uh, upwards of 60 seats uh, earlier on in this cycle. And in recent weeks, the polling really seemed to shift uh, in their favor as well. Uh, but as it stands, uh, it looks like they're only going to have a fairly slim majority. It could even be in the single digits. Uh, that's going to make everything far more difficult and complicated uh, for Kevin McCarthy. And everything from ensuring that McCarthy has the votes uh, to get elected speaker, uh, to passing messaging bills, to cutting deals on consequential must-pass items like government funding and debt limit. Uh, and it will give each member and each faction uh, in his caucus more leverage. And that's both the Trump wing and the moderate wing. I think it's instructive uh, to look at Speaker Pelosi uh, the last two years and all the headaches that she's uh, had to deal with with a small single digit uh, majority and trying to keep the progressive and moderate uh, wings of the Democratic caucus together on things like uh, infrastructure, the infrastructure bill and the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. Uh, so the margin for error uh, looks like it's just going to be much narrower than I'm sure uh, Kevin McCarthy wanted and was uh, probably expecting. Uh, over in the Senate, all cycle, it's pretty much looked like a toss up. And we're seeing that bear out in the results where control is really teetering uh, on the edge right now with these last few outstanding states. Uh, I think one takeaway is that candidate quality uh, really matters. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, has really been worried about this all along with some of these more Trump-aligned uh, candidates making it through the Republican primaries, like Oz in Pennsylvania and Don Baldick in New Hampshire, for example, both of whom lost uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, establishment Republicans like McConnell have to be thinking that given the economy, uh, given the president's low approval ratings, that some of these races are really there for the taking. Uh, and now there's a real chance uh, that they're not going to be able to gain uh, control of the Senate. And I just want to mention a few other takeaways that I think are worth noting. Uh, it was a bad night for Donald Trump. Uh, Trump-backed candidates did not fare well overall, uh, particularly in some Senate races and gubernatorial races. We're seeing an increase, uh, increasing amount uh, of Republicans talking about uh, Trump being a problem and how it's time for the party to move on. Uh, all of this is not what Trump wanted when he's indicated he's going to announce uh, his candidacy for president as soon as next week. And then the other side of that coin is that it was a great night for Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis. He had been polling about uh, 12 points ahead in the Florida governor's race. He ended up winning by almost 20 points, uh, which is really impressive when you consider how much Republicans underperform nationwide. He's the first uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate to win Miami-Dade County in 20 years. He won the Latino vote in impressive fashion. It's hard to envision uh, this night going much better for DeSantis, particularly considering uh, the bad night that Donald Trump had. And obviously, Florida uh, is a hugely important state in the presidential election. I think DeSantis is probably the most formidable uh, potential challenger to Trump on the Republican side. And Tuesday only helped him in that respect. The overperformance uh, on the Democratic side relative to expectations 
probably strengthens President Biden's hand a little bit. I think there were probably a lot of Democrats or folks on the left uh, who were ready to pounce and call for him to step aside in 2024 if Democrats had had a bad night. Uh, I think the results will tam- tamp that down a little bit. Uh, it may not be the end of that talk, uh, but he's on track to lose fewer midterm uh, House seats than any Democratic first-term president in 40 years, and that's a real positive uh, for him. More broadly, on the Democratic side, although you know Democrats certainly uh, would have wanted to maintain control of both houses, in some ways, the likely results will be politically advantageous to them heading into 2024. Uh, the spotlight will now be on the House Republican majority. Uh, you're going to see some controversial uh, members in very high-profile roles and chairing committees. Uh, for example, Jim Jordan, who's a very aggressive, very outspoken Trump supporter, is expected uh, to chair the House Judiciary Committee. That could cause headaches for Republicans. Uh, if they end up with a small majority, I think you can expect to see a lot of infighting among various factions of the party. Uh, it's going to make it a lot harder for them to present a unified front like they've been able to do the last two years under unified Democratic control. Uh, and conversely, it's going to allow Democrats to unify in opposition to the House Republican majority. There will be less focus on the differences within the Democratic Party uh, than has been the case in the last two years. And assuming they both run, I expect we'll see Trump and DeSantis uh, engage in a brutal uh, primary that could really tear at the, the fabric of the Republican Party. So there is a silver lining for Democrats, even though it looks like they'll lose at least uh, the House. And then finally, uh, the focus will turn to the 2024 presidential uh, campaign very soon here. Uh, Trump could announce uh, as soon as next week, as he suggested. Uh, if there are takeaways from the midterms that feed into that, I think it's that DeSantis's stock is way up. Uh, Trump's stock is down, but he still has a hold on such a large portion of the Republican base uh, that it's not hard to envision a prolonged and bruising uh, primary. Uh, on the Democratic side, I still think the, uh, President Biden has to make a personal decision about whether he wants to run again. Uh, but Tuesday's outcome, I think, will have the effect of boosting him somewhat and maybe quieting some of the voices uh, that were poised to call for him to uh, step aside if Democrats had had a really bad uh, night. So I think that's where we are in the big picture uh, right now, two days removed from Election Day when there's not yet total clarity. Uh, but we have a general sense of the, the direction uh, where the House is probably headed. But let me bring in my colleague, Ugoma Wampo uh, here. Uh, Ugoma is part of uh, GC's TM, uh, T team. We're going to talk a little bit about the tech implications of the midterms. Um, Ugoma, even though we appear headed for divided government, I think there's some sentiment or hope for movement on bipartisan tech legislation. I was wondering, do you agree with that? And if so, you know, what are the specific areas where we might see progress uh, in the tech space next Congress? 
Yeah, thanks, Rob. So there's certainly some hope that a divided Congress will be able to yield bipartisan compromises in the tech space. Uh, Democrats and Republicans tend to agree that legislation is necessary to respond to the challenges big tech and emerging technologies pose. They just tend to often have different approaches uh, and sometimes different expected outcomes. So first, I think we are going to see lawmakers try to build on the momentum for data privacy that has been happening, especially around the bipartisan American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which is the first comprehensive federal privacy bill that made it out of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and into the full chamber for consideration and a potential vote. Second, uh, I think we can expect lawmakers to focus on Kids Online Safety Act. So the Kids Online Safety Act for for example, has bipartisan support. And there are even talks right now about attaching it to year-end measures such as the omnibus appropriations package. And third, um, both Republicans and Democrats want to reform Section 234. Um, of the Communications Decency Act, which provides broad legal immunity for online platforms for content provided by users. But I think while both parties are critical of the section for different reasons, I do expect this particular issue around content moderation and free speech to largely play out in the courts. But I think that while most of these areas have bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats are most closely aligned on tackle, tackling tech issues related to national security and U.S. competition with China. So for all the tech-related bills that were introduced in the current Congress, the Chips and Science Act, which was aimed at boosting semiconductor uh, production, domestic semiconductor production, and keeping the U.S. competitive with China, was the only major piece of tech legislation that passed. All other bills face hurdles that caused them to stall. So there is certainly growing sentiment among lawmakers that more needs to be done on China, especially at the at the legislative level. So this is absolutely a space to to watch. So it seems like there's at least some hope at the congressional level that there might be progress uh, on tech legislation, but it's still an uphill climb with the possible exception of kind of national security, China related uh, tech tech uh, legislation. The Biden administration uh, has also been active on tech. And with the divided Congress, do you think we're going to see more uh, federal agencies ramp up their uh, tech regulatory efforts? Yes, I think we can see the Biden administration rely more on federal agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission uh, to use their rulemaking authority and enforcement powers now that we will you know, likely have a divided Congress. For example, the FTC is currently considering proposed rulemaking on data privacy, and it's likely to continue on this path um, as Congress continues to stall on privacy legislation. And this morning, the agency issued a new policy statement that effectively reactivates and ramps up the FTC's authority to police anti-competitive behaviors by companies in the internet age. So on the one hand, there is plenty of alignment between the tech policy objectives of the Biden administration and House Republicans. So in September, 
the administration released six principles to guide its tech policy work. And many of these align with the commitment to America platform that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy unveiled this fall, which includes a tech focus around privacy, data security, content moderation, and keeping kids uh, safe online. And I think that these areas of alignment suggest that there's an opportunity for, for them, for these areas to make progress in the next Congress um, as well as among federal agencies. But on the other hand, it's very possible that House Republicans will frustrate the Biden administration's efforts. We will see changes to committees like the Committee on Energy and Commerce, um, which oversees the FTC and the FCC and several other federal agencies, which could shift legislative efforts and oversight. The committee is currently chaired by uh, Representative Frank Pallone, but Republicans expect to control, you know, Republicans are expected to control the House. Um, and so we, we can expect that Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers will ultimately spearhead the committee. And she has shared um, the FTC's data privacy objectives, but has also stated that robust privacy protection should come through elected representatives and not from federal agencies. And also with um, Republican Jim Jordan, likely to chair the House Judiciary Committee, as you've already mentioned, he will likely launch investigations into government agencies that are tasked with with regulating tech companies. Um, Earlier this year, actually, he signaled that he plans to investigate FTC Chair Lena Khan. Um, So with Republicans seemingly set to take over key House committees for tech policy, they will certainly try to slow down actions of the Biden administration, even though there is certainly alignment on some of these tech issues. So despite the kind of glimmer of possibility that you've offered us, um, tech legislation at the federal level tends to progress fairly slowly. Um, So as a result, we've often seen state legislatures like in California, for example, kind of take up the mantle and lead the charge on uh, tech policy in the U.S. Do you think states will continue to pass their own tech legislation in the absence of uh, federal action? Yes. So we can certainly expect states to continue proposing and passing tech legislation. Uh, This has really been the trend over the last few years with California leading the charge on privacy and children's online safety, Texas and Florida taking on censorship on social media platforms, and Alabama, uh, Colorado, and others limiting the use of AI in their states. And these are just, you know, a few examples. And in several states, tech was on the midterm ballots as voters decided on ballot initiatives with tech implications, such as electric vehicle funding, gig workers, and data privacy. So, for example, in Montana, voters voted by a wide margin to approve a constitutional amendment that would require law enforcement agencies to secure a search warrant before accessing an individual's private electronic data. So I think that in the absence of federal legislation, states will certainly continue to advance the tech regulatory landscape in the U.S. Great. Well, thanks, Ugoma. That is certainly an area to pay close attention to as we head into uh, next year. Uh, and now I'm going to turn it to Max Mandich with Global Council's financial services team to talk a little about uh, what to expect in the financial services uh, space coming out of the midterms. Max, so if we're looking uh, at Republican control of the House, which it appears where we're headed, uh, what are some of the changes that could take place in the next Congress uh, related to financial services? Sure. So I think one of the biggest shifts is going to be a shift in more more of the the environment. Um, 
you're going to see increasing oversights from House Republicans on the Biden administration's actions, particularly at the Securities Exchange Commission, but but certainly not limited to them. You know, throughout the throughout the past two years, you've seen Republicans on the Hill continue to criticize the aggressive pace of rulemakings, which SEC, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler has been taking. I'm talking, for example, the climate rule. Um, even in recent, you know, last month, you saw a group of Senate Democrats actually note that a slowdown in the, the rulemaking process was a was a positive move by the SEC in a letter they sent to him. So I, do, I don't think this attitude nece- necessarily completely derails agenda items that the SEC is already working on. But I think the, the progressive moment we've been having for the past two years in general is, is, is likely somewhat over, you know, certainly at the margins, I think you'll see, see some potential pullback on some of these, these aggressive actions they've been taking. You know, the House Republicans are going to continuously drag Biden administration officials to the Hill for hearings. This is going to slow down the process. You know, they'll have to go down there, staff will have to prep them. This is just going to grind, grind things down, kind of how Uganda was, was alluding to earlier in the tech space as well. So, I mean, you know, overall, you're going to potentially see an environment where the Biden administration is maybe just at least politically or messaging from a messaging perspective, somewhat more constrained than in, in the past two years. So is there anything that can actually get done in financial uh, services policy uh, with the divided Congress next year? I know you've done a lot of work on digital assets, uh, including when you're on the Hill. Is there any bipartisan energy for something like that? So I, I think so. Um, presumed chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry, he's been an advocate for pushing digital asset legislation through Congress. I think he's going to, to do that, particularly in light of the, the FTX uh, fiasco that's been going on throughout this week. Um, you know, I, I think if that, that collapse didn't happen, uh, if that collapse didn't happen on Election Day, there'd probably be an even more aggressive concerted call for accelerated legislation, but that, that certainly could pick up once kind of this initial midterms news has, has died down a bit. Um, Representative McHenry, he's not a, he's not a bomb thrower like, like Jim Jordan, for example, you know, he's uh, he's, I don't think the house financial services committee is going to be the wild free for all that, a, that a number of the other, other committees potentially could be. He's been working with uh, current chairwoman Maxine Waters on a bipartisan stablecoin bill. They're still working out issues, but uh, stablecoin remains the most likely area of bipartisan agreement within the cryptocurrency sector. They're going to be the presumed chairman and ranking member next year. So the negotiations they've been currently going for going through are going to will, will continue. I just think the biggest challenge for digital assets, like like a lot of things that are not not immediate priorities, will be the challenge in finding the final legislative vehicle. Um, you know, maybe if as Uganda was alluding to, some type of tech vehicle comes together, I could envision aspects of cryptocurrency getting getting included in some type of economic competitiveness package along those lines. Um, but this also, this also, you know, have to mention that if, you know, mac- traditional macroeconomic conditions continue to worsen and consume legislative attention, that also could make it harder to pass you know, legislation. However, you know, in general, I think digital assets is not a partisan issue, at least not yet. While Republicans maybe are seen as a, a bit more supportive of the industry, the, you know, the, the biggest critics of the industry are certainly on the Democratic side. It still does remain a bipartisan issue where you could see potential action next year. Thanks. So beyond digital assets, I think one of the biggest issues uh, in financial services has been sustainability uh, and the push 
for ESG investment. Uh, what happens to, to that under a Republican House? So I, I certainly think you're going to see a significant pushback from congressional Republicans uh, on the industry for any type of social agenda, including ESG. I, I don't think, you know, that maybe doesn't necessarily translate into legislation. I don't think the, the anti-ESG investment bill will be becoming law anytime, anytime soon. But, you know, it was one of the biggest talking points uh, in both House Financial Services and Senate Banking this year when the big bank CEOs came up, came up to testify on the Hill. You know, Republicans continue to criticize any type of ESG inclinations during those sessions. They, they, they'll continue to lose, use language discussing about how, how firms in the financial services sector should focus on fiduciary duties only as, as opposed to posing, posing any type of social agenda. And I think one, one thing to note, and I, I don't want to speculate too much on this, but, you know, depending on how the, uh, the SEC climate disclosure rule moves forward, I mean, you're going to immediately see a legal challenge um, given the West Virginia case. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily guess on how exactly the law can be applied to to that specific rulemaking. But I think we're going to have to see how courts interpret it. And I think there's a very real real possibility that litigation could could potentially roll back those climate disclosure rules if they if they become final. Great. Well, thank you, Max, and thanks, Ugoma. It looks like we have several uh, questions from our listeners, so why don't we uh, run through these? Um, first up, what chances now do you think a Republican uh, Ron DeSantis versus Democrat Gavin Newsom contest that is likely in the 2024 uh, general election? And I, I'll take a crack at that. I think it's probably pretty low. Um, a lot would have to happen uh, to get us there. Gavin Newsom is a name that has been, uh, you know, floated as someone who who might be interested in running uh, at some point. Um, you know, first President Biden, I think, would have to decide not to run again. Uh, and then I think the prohibitive front runner would likely uh, be uh, Kamala Harris. I don't know necessarily that she would uh, be able to clear the field and avoid a primary, and that's potentially an area where Newsom could hop in. Um, but you might see others like a Pete Buttigieg uh, or some other names in there as well. So it, it has the potential to get a little bit crowded, um, and you know Newsom would have to make it through that. And then obviously on the Republican side, uh, I think the dynamic that we talked a little bit about earlier with kind of Trump and DeSantis being the two front runners. Um, you know, we'll have to see how that shakes out as well. So it's, I wouldn't rule it out of hand. Uh, I think it's probably a, a lot would have to happen. The dominoes would have to fall uh, in a particular way to get us to that, that matchup. Uh, moving down the list here, in what situations does, does the size of a majority make a difference as opposed to just having uh, the majority. I think that it, it makes a bigger difference the, the lower the majority uh, is, right? So if Republicans had a 30 seat majority versus a 25 seat majority, they'd still have a lot of uh, margin for error. They could give members uh, the ability to vote against things and still be able to pass it. Uh, but if you get down to a situation where it's just a couple of seats, yeah, I think uh, Pelosi's been operating with around a four or five seat majority, somewhere around there, uh, for a lot of the last two years, depending on vacancies and things like that. Um, it just gets really hard because uh, any member becomes very, very uh, influential. In the Senate, we've had a 50-50 Senate, uh, and you've basically seen a situation where 
Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have kind of had the equivalent of veto power over a lot of uh, of things. They, it was really a matter of getting uh, Manchin and Cinema on board, be able to get the Inflation Reduction Act passed. They were really able to shape that. Uh, if Democrats had had a few more uh, uh, seats in the Senate. Uh, they could have lost those votes and still passed that legislation. So I think it gets progressively uh, more difficult on all, all manner of things. Anything from McCarthy getting elected speaker to passing a House rules package to cutting a deal on the debt limit to uh, you know getting enough votes to pass uh, messaging bills that that may go over to the Senate. Uh, it just becomes harder the low, the the smaller the majority uh, becomes. And then uh, we have a question on uh, crypto regulation. So, Max, I'll yeah. uh, ask Happy. you, what do we expect now from crypto regulation uh, with this new Congress, particularly in light of the chaos at uh, FTX? So a couple of quick points on this, because I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. So number one, I do want to stress that this was a very, very bad day for the crypto industry in Washington, D.C. The, the, the fact that it happened on the midterm day itself, they probably got a little bit lucky, or otherwise this would have been even more in the news cycle. But Sam Bankman-Fried had presented himself as uh, as one of the adults in the room and had been a been a very well-known face here in D.C. And the fact that FTX essentially collapsed in 24 hours is, is going to be a very bad reputational hit to the industry. Um, I think it likely will accelerate calls for some type of cryptocurrency legislation next year. However, the, the risk there is that the skeptics of the technology and the industry, particularly on the, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party, probably will feel somewhat emboldened by this collapse. And that, that could make legislation harder to craft. Um, I think folks who are the moderates, moderate Dems who have been supportive of cryptocurrency before, um, I think it'll be harder for them to 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 uh, to push back against those voices i'm not saying it can't happen i think everyone wants cryptocurrency legislation particularly on stable coins but also in other areas as well um so does this accelerate calls but maybe maybe make it a little bit harder to to come to a final deal um i think that's poss a possibility a couple more questions uh and then we're we're kind of bumping up on time here um is stacy abrams uh does she now have no chance whatsoever uh, of running for higher office, like a possible future presidential bid after she's now had two gubernatorial defeats uh, to Republican Brian Kemp in Georgia. Um, I would say, you know, it's not a helpful thing uh, to her. Uh, and she's kind of in a similar situation to Beto O'Rourke in, in Texas, who's made a couple of uh, high profile runs and, and hasn't been able to win. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not uh, it's not dispositive. I mean, you see you saw Joe Biden uh, run for president unsuccessfully uh, a couple of times. Uh, you know, she's relatively young. I think um, someone like her and someone like Beto O'Rourke, they're going to have to kind of plot their next move and be thoughtful about it. Um, but, uh, you know, political comebacks happen uh, with regularity, I think, um, in the U.S. And so I would not I would not rule out uh, hearing from her again. Uh, in the future. And finally, we have one more question. Uh, is If DeSantis is up and Trump is down, uh, what are the main policy differences between a DeSantis-led administration compared to what 
uh, we would expect from Trump 2.0? That's a really good uh, question. Um, I think one of the things that a lot of Republicans really like about DeSantis is that they get a lot of the Trump kind of agenda, but they get it in a more disciplined and strategic way without a lot of the sort of drama and chaos uh, that that Trump uh, brings to the table. Um, So I think on balance, at least domestically, um, you would see a lot of similarities between a Trump and a DeSantis uh, agenda. I think thus far, DeSantis has been pretty circumspect on foreign policy. I don't think we've heard a lot from him on his stance on foreign policy. Um, you know, but my expectation is that uh, it wouldn't track too uh, divergently from uh, from Trump. But again, I think maybe a little bit more disciplined, a little more strategic, uh, and a little more um, uh, sort of thoughtful uh, on his part and, and maybe a little less impulsive. And with that, I think uh, we have gotten through all of our listener questions. We appreciate those. And I just want to say thanks to everyone uh, for joining us. As always, if if there's anything you want to discuss or if you have any uh, follow-up questions, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, And we hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. 